0: Hi, this is Scott Wilkinson, host of Home Theater Geeks. In episode 67, I chat with Joe Kane about his new 3D test patterns and building his home theater. So stay tuned.
1: Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is TWIT. Bandwidth for Home Theater Geeks is provided by CashFly at C A C H E F L Y dot com.
0: This is Home Theater Geeks with Scott Wilkinson, recorded May twenty third, twenty eleven, episode sixty seven, three D reality. This episode of Home Theater Geeks is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs and Blu-rays by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. And by hover.com. Hover is domain name registration and management that's simple. For Hover's transfer concierge service, free for our audience, go to hover.com slash htg offer code htg. Hi there, Scott Wilkinson here with UltimateAVMag.com and HomeTheater.com. This week's guest geek is Joe Kane, one of the world's foremost video experts, making his second appearance on the show. Hey, Joe, welcome back. Thanks, it's good to be here. Now, the reason I have you here is that we've got a lot to talk about in terms of 3D and also your new home theater. So we've got a lot to cover. Those who are tuned into the uh, live video stream at live.twit.tv or into the chat room at irc.twit.tv can post questions for Joe and I'll pass on as many as I can. So let me start with 3D, this whole movement towards 3D stereoscopic imagery. What do you think of it overall? Is it worthwhile?
1: It, it, it's a difficult question to answer. Um... I haven't been a fan of what I've been seeing up to this point. I think it can be a lot better than it is, and when it becomes a lot better than it is, I, th- I think I will become far more enthusiastic than I was, say, at day one. Mm-hmm.
0: Don't you think that's partly <clears throat> because it's a new art form and people are still sort of getting their, getting their uh, chops together on it, maybe they haven't quite got it all together
1: yet? Oh, that that has a great deal to do with it, that um, it's um, almost everyone who is involved in 3D is looking at it as a new art form. And I think they're still playing with it to try to determine um, what's going on. Certainly the A-list producers of motion pictures are doing far better with it than they were, say, a year ago. So, things are progressing on the production side uh, at a rapid rate. Right.
0: Now, have you uh, have you been to many uh, 3D uh, presentations in commercial cinemas?
1: I have only been to a few. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, um, as an example, I'm not in enamored with some of the technology that's being used to present 3D and I don't particularly care for it. Therefore when 3D movies are being presented in those formats I don't go just because uh, I don't care for the technology that's being used to present the 3D. Mm. Which is your favorite of the technologies? Certainly Active is uh, my favorite followed closely by the Dolby color system where um you don't have issues with the screen, and this is of course for motion picture uh, presentation in in theatrical mm-hmm. environments
0: right. Uh, I recently saw mm-hmm. Thor uh twice actually <laughs> uh, once uh, at an active glasses theater. the arc lights here in l a use the expand system and once in IMAX, which is a dual projector polarized system and the one thing I really didn't like about the active system was it was so dim. It was just dark as all get out, whereas the IMAX system was a lot brighter. Now, granted, the IMAX system, you need to have a special polarizing, <laughs> polarization-preserving screen, uh, which has its own problems, but uh, it sure looked a lot brighter.
1: I understand that overall brightness is an issue in the uh, game and getting to 3D, and I, one way or another, that's going to have to be resolved, um, whether we just end up having to put brighter bulbs in or get more efficient active glasses. I'm not quite sure what the final solution will be, but um, it's, um, as you've pointed out, 3D is still in its infancy. And <clears throat> as we progress in time, there are more and more approaches to making 3D work mm-hmm turning to
0: the home environment we have several different technologies there as well we uh, in terms of flat panels particularly which is mostly where the action is these days uh, we have uh, active glasses flat panels and we have passive flat panels um, and two different kinds of passive flat panels now that Samsung has made its recent announcement Uh what are your thoughts on on those various technologies
1: well um. The passive technology, where you end up having to take uh, half the resolution of one image, and meaning the left eye, and half the resolution of the right eye, and put them on the screen at the same time, certainly has some limitations, and I honestly expect consumers to be able to see those limitations. Mm-hmm. So, at the moment, I'm not. Uh, I'm not enamored with the passive approach uh, where we're doing it with a single panel and using half resolution. Obviously, um, in the future, there's going to be something known as active passive, where the active part is on the display and the passive part is in the glasses. Uh, That certainly should improve the condition of being able to wear passive glasses
0: right passive glasses are generally preferred because they're lighter uh they're less cumbersome less bulky they're certainly a lot less expensive uh but putting the active part in the tv would then make the
1: tv more expensive wouldn't it i don't have a good answer for that because what i'm seeing reported is completely the opposite that um In theory, if the panel will run fast enough, there is effectively zero cost in doing active in a display device. The passive panels require a filter to go over the top of the um, surface of the set, Mm -hmm. which theoretically would add cost. So from what I'm reading in the press and what I understand, the passive display is actually more expensive to build than the active display. Now, it isn't priced that way in the in the marketplace. Um, <laughs>
0: as,
1: as you probably know, uh, yeah. some of the passive displays are less expensive than the active displays. So there's no accounting for cost versus price. Yes.
0: <laughs> good point. Excellent. Very good. Now, that brings us to the whole issue of reviewing 3D flat panels, which is an area that you have recently started to address. Uh, You came over to our studio and showed Tom Norton and me some stuff. Recently, last week, we went to uh, an event at uh, DreamWorks Animation, a beautiful campus, by the way, uh, where Samsung was holding a day-long reviewers workshop wherein you showed us there, too, uh, some of your new test patterns. Now, I have to say, for those who don't know, Uh, Joe is famous for creating uh, video test patterns that are used to evaluate the quality of a video display, how well it does this versus that, one thing and another. And he's created many discs um, under the uh, umbrella of Video Essentials, or more recently, Digital Video Essentials. And your website, VideoEssentials.com, is where people can get these discs, right?
1: Yes, uh, that's certainly where they can find a link um, to it. I don't actually sell the discs myself because I don't want to compete with distributors. And so there are links on my site to where they can purchase the discs. Okay,
0: great. And uh, very recently then in these two events that I've attended, uh, you've showed us now what you have developed in terms of 3D test patterns, which are sorely needed. Those of us who review 3D TVs uh, don't have any really good way yet of evaluating their performance with these certain kinds of test patterns uh, that you have now come up with and will soon make available. So I'm very excited about that. And I'd love to go through some of them with you. Um, tell us, though, first your general your overall view of testing 3D panels. How should we go about
1: that? Well, among the many things in 3D that I'm concerned about is um, it comes out and there are no personal expectations of what it should be. There's the wow factor of seeing dimension in the picture and all too many times people tend to evaluate or make judgments about what they're seeing with no foundation, uh, no idea of what it's supposed to look like or uh, what to expect from it. So what I'm trying to do is um, get people beyond the wow factor of 3D as quickly as possible by saying, if we're going to evaluate the quality of a 3D set, let's take the approach of going step by step, leading into 3D, in other words, determining what the display is actually doing before actually watching something with a Z axis, something that has dimension. So I'm starting out with a position that first of all, all 3D displays have to do 2D and that the 3D will probably not be any better than the 2D capability of the set. So we start by evaluating the 2D capability and oh, by the way, I honestly want people to see the reception and display of 3D as actually the display of two 2D images. There's a 2D image for the left eye and there's a 2D image for the right eye and I want them to use the heritage of everything they know about evaluating 2D and just apply it to 3D. Makes
0: total sense to me since 3D as, as it applies to TVs and movies is really a simulation as you say it's a combination of two 2D displays. So The the best 3D that it can produce
1: depends on how well it does 2D. That's the way I'm seeing it. And I also believe that if people understand that, they can get beyond the wow factor of 3D much faster and see it for what it really is, and therefore their expectations would go up uh, because they have a lot of uh, experience with 2D. And if they look at 3D from a 2D perspective, I think 3D is going to progress in quality much faster than Mm. if we have to deal with them getting over the wow factor.
0: Right, right. Now, I've always said that um, if you want a good 2D set, this is sort of coming at it from the opposite direction. If you want a good 2D set, you might want to consider getting a set that is capable of doing 3D because, generally speaking, a manufacturer will put 3D capabilities in its best 2D sets. Have you found that to be true? I, um, Gen- generally speaking, generically
1: it, 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 Oh, if you want to be, be generally speaking, yes. Um, the one caution there is... The approach to 3D, the approach that each manufacturer is taking to 3D could influence the way that set performs in both 2D and 3D. Ah. And at the moment, I'm taking the position of active versus passive. Um, I've already uh, intimated that, that most of the passive displays that exist now Uh, try to display both the left and right eye simultaneously and if you've got a 1080p display and you've got a full resolution left eye and a full resolution right eye the only way that you can display both simultaneously is to subtract half the lines from each image. Mm -hmm. Now if a set has a predisposition to filtering half the information out of each image. The question then becomes, what does it do in 2D? If, if it has to do this in 3D, unless there's a completely separate circuit for the 2D versus the 3D, which then of course becomes expensive on top of the fact that the panels are more expensive. Um, I'm not going to say absolutely because it's a 3D set that it's going to be better in in everything. In fact, I can find examples where because it's 3D in passive in particular, the 2D capability isn't anywhere near as good as 2D sets from that same manufacturer.
0: Mm, good point, that's a good point. Uh, Alex Santos in the chat room uh, points out that 1080p ends up being 540, which it which it does. It's exactly what you're saying. It's 540 in each eye. Not only that, in my experience, looking at such a set, even through the 3D glasses, I see these very thin black horizontal lines um, that indicate that each eye is really only seeing half resolution. We actually have a picture that, that shows exactly this point. Um, I, I believe it's called uh, glasses. And uh, if John can uh, pull that up, uh, we'll be able to see exactly what we're talking about. Oh, unfortunately, it's a little—at least on my display—it's got some more A. But um, t- tell us about what we're seeing here.
1: Well, um, again, what I've what we've done here is we we've put up a flat field, and a flat field, of course, means that every single line is active, and right. with the same you, color. In this case, white. Right. It's it's a flat field, white, and so what happens is when we take out half the lines uh, from each image, uh, we're taking out half the vertical lines. And vertical, of course, is transitions in the vertical direction. So we're actually removing horizontal lines. So when you look through the glasses, the left eye, even though it's a flat field, the left eye only sees 540 lines. Now, the right eye, sees the other 500 and, sees another 540 lines but from the other image from the other half of the image mm-hmm. so when you put the glasses on the left eye sees 540 lines and the right eye sees 540 lines now there's been some suppositions that these two sets of 540 add together and, of course, they don't because if they did, you wouldn't see any 3D because there's a difference between the left eye and right eye. And if the left eye doesn't see just the left eye information and the right eye seeing just the right eye information, you won't see 3D. So anybody who has the philosophy that, oh, gee, 540 plus 540 equals 1080, therefore it's full resolution, is crazy because 3D wouldn't work if that was the case.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so. Yeah, What you're seeing in, in those glasses, when you put the glasses up, you're seeing half half the lines being delivered to the left eye and half the lines being delivered to the right eye. And your brain is conscious of the fact that half the lines in both the images are missing. Therefore, yes. it's truly no better than 540.
0: Right. Alex uh, Santos in the chat room also asks along these lines, uh, so to speak, <laughs> um, it does the 540 line interlacing occur at a frequency so high that it's not noticeable and and the answer really is no
1: all right and uh, once again you have to see each image individually now he's using the word interlacing and the presumption is that the interlacing he's talking about is the fact that the two images are interlaced one of the things to keep in mind is both images are on the screen simultaneously the half lines from the left eye and the half lines from the right eye are on the screen simultaneously so it doesn't matter what rate they're flashed at you right they're both there at the same time so Half the lines are gone. That's the beginning and end of everything.
0: Right, right. Um, now, uh, so this leads me to ask you about your new 3D test patterns, most of which are what you call 3D flat, which means they're not really 3D. They're, the, the left eye and the right eye are exactly the same. Tell us about that.
1: Well, I'm trying to take an an approach to 3D step by step. Coming away, as I said, uh, 3D is nothing more than two 2D images. All right, so once we go to 3D, if we want to evaluate what the display is doing, independent of the glasses, we put up images where the left eye and right eye exactly match. What, As you pointed out, what I'm calling 3D flat meaning that everything is in the plane of the screen. Now, in this sort oh, before,
0: you, before you go on, let me just quickly um, explain that to see 3D, uh, you have a depth. You have a, what's called the Z-axis, and you can put things in front of the screen or behind the screen or right at the screen. And the things that are right at the screen are perfectly coincident. That is, that is, they overlay each other perfectly. If they come in front of the screen or they go behind the screen, they diverge. And you see two images start to diverge as they get farther and farther away from the screen plane. But at the screen plane, they're exactly coincident. And that's the kind of images that you're talking about here.
1: That, that's, absolutely, that's absolutely it. And um, one of the great things about 3D flat is it allows you to evaluate what the display is doing independent of the glasses. Uh, that's a critical part of 3D is knowing what is being delivered to the glasses before evaluating what the glasses are doing. So it's a twofold thing. Number one, you can evaluate the quality of 3D displays independent of the method of presenting 3D, uh, because you're truly evaluating the two 2D images. And number two, this 3D flat concept allows you to evaluate the quality of the glasses. You can tell what's coming from the display and then look to see what the glasses are doing to what's coming from the display. So this concept of using 3D flat gets you Way beyond the wow factor instantly um, allows you to compare technologies, as an example, active versus passive, or just a whole bunch of active technologies. It allows you to objectively make comparisons of what the displays are doing. And then, of course, it gives you isolation so that you can then look at the glasses independent of the display.
0: It's very cool, actually, to be able to see test patterns that are driving the sets 3D mode, essentially, that are t- that are telling the set, oh, this is a 3D image, it's got a right and a left, but you don't have to be wearing the glasses to look at it. You can be looking at it without glasses, see what it's doing, and then put the glasses on and say, oh, they're color shifting, they're making it dimmer, they're doing this or that, one thing or another. Um, it, it's really an excellent
1: approach, I think. It's critical, in my opinion, to actually understanding what's going on. And I say that from the um, perspective of too many people are attributing things. They put the glasses on and say, oh, wow. In other words, the wow factor of 3D. <laughs> and, and and they don't get what's actually happening. They attribute... Um, uh attributes uh, that, that's a two words same thing but anyway yeah, right. they, <laughs>
0: uh
1: they they think they're seeing something when it's actually a combination of what the display is doing plus the glasses if they know what the display is doing first then there's no issue of determining what the glasses are doing. There is a reality to what the glasses are doing rather than a supposition that, oh, gee, I'm seeing this effect. This must be happening.
0: Right, right. Now, um, uh, Alan uh, Mitch in the chat room asks, so you, do your patterns let us adjust color uh, and tint and brightness and contrast? Have you developed those in 3D flat yet, or, or are you mostly looking at, resolution and stuff like that, which we'll get, which we'll show a picture of in a second.
1: Now, I have not left out common adjustments. First of all, uh, a large number of sets have completely separate adjustments for 3D than they do 2D. So it's absolutely critical to have patterns in 3D, uh, 3D flat in my opinion, to make Mm -hmm. basic adjustments. Now, granted, uh, you have to make some adjustments like grayscale and... uh, actually grayscale is probably the biggest one that you have to make through the glasses right but and and the glasses have to be active incidentally uh if 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 you have active glasses um they have one color in the off mode and they have a completely different color in the on mode. So when you're doing grayscale, uh, a true 3D signal has to be coming from the set in order to make this work. And so I've taken my commonly available 2D signals and I've made them into 3D flat. So all the test patterns that you're used to for calibrating everything in the TV set is now available in uh, 3D flat so that you can do the basic calibration with or without glasses.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, let's take a look at uh, one of your resolution patterns. I just want to show this as an example. Um, I believe it's called resolution. We'll, we'll find out in a minute. There it is. It's the Simpty resolution chart. Um, and uh, what's great about it is that it gives you all kinds of information, including... Um, brightness, how, how the brightness changes from black to white, um, and uh, in particular, resolution, horizontal and vertical in the lower uh, lower uh, r- uh, left quadrant of that image. It may be hard to see on the screen, but um, you've got horizontal and vertical, um, uh, what are called bursts. Uh,
1: there they are. Uh, where yeah, in, you, Those are in the center of the image as well. Ah. Those right. are those are actually in the center of the they're in the center and they're at all four corners. And uh, the reason for that is we want to uh, often look at resolution uh, at both the center and the corners of the image. Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing is um, you're seeing full resolution, half resolution, and one third resolution in both horizontal and vertical. Now, the great thing about this test pattern is they're independent of each other. Horizontal exists independent of vertical. So um, you can look at the two independent of, of each other.
0: Mm-hmm. And then you all, there's also in this, is it is the pixel phase
1: also in this pattern? No, the pixel phase is in a different pattern. Different um, pattern. Yeah, and and I, should,
0: I should just describe it then. I don't think I gave, sent it to John. Uh, it's it's a combination of the horizontal and vertical uh, test patterns uh, such that in the finest resolution, you have it like a checkerboard of
1: individual pixels. That's, uh, that's correct. It, it, it's simultaneous horizontal and vertical information. Now, one of the things that I've discovered is um, oftentimes a display will not function well at all when it's being delivered simultaneous horizontal and vertical information. But if you look as, as an example at the uh, detail that's in someone's skin, it's neither horizontal or vertical. It's both simultaneously. It, it, they both occur simultaneously. Right. Um, it's both simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> They're and, in there, yeah, right. Yeah, in any event, um, so, it's important to me to have both independent horizontal and vertical, plus a combination of the two happening at the same time. And that way I get to look at how well the set handles both independently and both together. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the test patterns that I've modified the overscan test pattern, uh, and uh, in the 3D version of it, um, I've actually included uh, both simultaneous horizontal and vertical resolution pixel phase, and I've included horizontal and vertical independent. So in setting the sharpness control, which uh, affects all of this, you can actually see what's happening to horizontal and vertical resolution independently and together as you're adjusting the sharpness control Mm. to get rid of all the extra edges that are in the picture.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm sorry I didn't send that picture up to John to, to show everybody, but, uh, but I do understand your point. Um, um, I've got a
1: few. Sorry, go ahead. No, I say um, hopefully, if people know my material, they know the overscan test pattern and they know the pixel phase test pattern. And I've just taken elements uh, from the SIMTY RP133, the pixel phase test pattern, and put them into the overscan test pattern.
0: That's actually a great idea, and I'm, I'm looking forward to using that very much. Uh, we have some questions in the chat room, but before we get to them, I want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors for this show, uh, which is Netflix. Netflix <laughs> delivers movies directly to your home and saves you time, money, and hassle, certainly over brick-and-mortar stores. You can instantly watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed directly to your PC or Mac or stream to your TV uh, or an, a... Uh, Blu-ray player, Netflix-enabled Blu-ray player, or a game console like Xbox 360, PS3, Nintendo Wii. And if you're still into discs, you can get DVDs and Blu-rays by mail in about one business day. You can watch as many movies as you want, um, anytime you want. There's never a late fee, and uh, no due dates. So no streaming out to the store there to return that that disc or (laughs) VHS. Uh, Our Netflix streaming pick of the week is something uh, that I enjoy very much, which is Craig Ferguson. Does this need to be said? Um, Those of you who stay up late and watch late night comedy know Craig Ferguson from his his show, The Late Late Show on CBS. Uh, One of my favorites, certainly. And he's a hilarious guy. And this, uh, this program is uh, stand-up comedy with uncensored material he can't use on network TV. Uh, you can instantly watch this movie or choose from thousands of TV episodes and other movies when you register for a free trial membership. Go to netflix.com twit. Be sure to sign up for your free trial at netflix.com twit. And we thank Netflix for their support of twit. So, Joe... Um, I've gotten a couple of questions in the chat room about high frame rate 3D. James Cameron's been talking about it. Um, Peter Jackson apparently is filming The Hobbit in 48 uh, frames per second in 3D. Do you think this is really going to be one of these advances, one of these moves forward that is gonna improve 3D?
1: Well, certainly, um, IMAX is an example that's been using forty-eight frames for a considerable amount of time. Um, so it's it's. Certainly do, they, do they actually
0: use forty-eight frames? That they are when they show a movie, a standard movie like Thor or whatever, that wasn't captured in forty-eight frames, right? No, no. Uh, I'm
1: actually talking about IMAX presentations. Uh, uh, okay, IMAX <laughs> source material. Yes, IMAX sourced material has been at 48 for uh, some amount of time. Of course, the larger image and the amount of power that's necessary a 48 has uh, given a much smoother image than 24. Uh, I certainly have been a fan of increasing the frame rate for some time, although I openly acknowledge. Uh, the artistic point of view that people are used to telling stories in 24 frame uh there is you know the wheels have to go backwards um you know the spokes on the wheels have to go backwards uh, or it's not film uh i 48 frames is going to be a lot better in image quality than 24. there's no question of that
0: Did we Sorry, lose, Scott. Yeah, we we did for a second. Sorry, I, I I muted I muted out for a second there. Now, would you go to 48 or would you go to 60? Mm-hmm. There's been some talk of, of either one of those frame rates.
1: Um, you probably know that showscan uh, was in 60 frames per second, so there's uh, there's certainly uh, a precedent for it. But right. a, a number of years ago, we actually tried to move from 24 to 30. And of course, all the 50 Hertz countries in the world, the, the, those people who are locked to the line frequency objected because there's no easy conversion from mm. 30 to 50. Uh, I certainly want to see a faster frame rate. I even believe from uh, from the 50s, if you've ever seen Oklahoma in Tadeo, uh, which is a 30 frame format, uh, it is so much better than uh the 24 frame material so mm. even going from 24 to 30 is uh, a spectacular move and of course uh show was absolutely spectacular in uh 60 frame it in fact most people came out of show believing that they had seen 3d in other words they were attributing qualities to the image that weren't there in reality but it was so far beyond their wildest expectations of what could be done in a motion picture presentation that they were attributing 3d quality to this 60 frame per second um image of course Mm -hmm. if they ever got used to it they'd realize that it's just 2d but um, People,
0: people often say that about increased resolution as well if 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 we go to 4k for example 4k 2d uh, a lot of people say, oh, that
1: looks really 3D. I was, was, um, I, <laughs> I say that in past tense. I wanted uh, 10-bit 422 to come to um, the high-definition market right from the beginning um, In other words, our video right now is 8 bit, and I wanted 10 bit. And instead of uh, the 420 that's on um, Blu-ray, I wanted 422. And
0: it turns out. By the way, before you you move on, let me just quickly say, 422 and 420 are very geeky terms uh, referring to how the color is encoded and compressed. And 420 is represents more compression than 422. 444 is literally essentially uncompressed, but it requires so much bandwidth that it's not practical. Uh, 422, right. I suppose, is practical, but they chose to do 420 uh, because it re- consumes less bandwidth,
1: but it also results in a, in a lesser picture quality. Actually, the interesting thing is that the people who decided on eight-bit four-two-zero were analog people, no. and they thought they eh, don't take don't. Sometimes digital is better. <laughs> but what <clears throat> what happened is that there was a lack of understanding that when you have to compress things, the compression scheme looks at artifacts and looks at imperfections in the picture. And it turns out the higher quality the source is, the less difficult the signal is to encode. So um, something eight, uh, 10-bit 422 versus 8-bit 420, gee, 8-bit 420 in analog terms is a lot less information. But unfortunately, there are artifacts created by that low resolution. So. 10-bit 422 actually takes a lower bit rate to produce a better image than 8-bit 420. Hmm. And so the joke is that the higher rate, the better quality input, is easier to compress than the poor quality signal that they chose to use. And when I was working first, working and trying to bring high definition to the consumer, I wanted 10-bit 422 mm-hmm. because knowing if you feed a better signal into the encoder, it takes less bits to come out with an equal quality image. So we would have had a far better high definition system if it hadn't been for these analog people who had decided, oh, lower amount going in must be lower compression, uh, lower bits per second. And it's far from the truth that that you get better quality by putting a higher quality in at the input and making it easier to compress. Mm, mm, right. Um,
0: getting back to frame rates for just one second, uh, I just wanted to mention that I heard Douglas Trumbull, uh, a very famous visual effects guy who worked on 2001 and many movies over the last 30, 40 years. Uh, I heard him at the SID conference last week, Society for Information Display, advocating for 120 frames a second that if you do that you can you you get even better uh, picture quality to begin with but uh, a much sharper motion but also you can downscale it if you need to to 60 or 48 or 30 or 24 by combining certain numbers of frames together and eliminating other frames and he thought that was really the most effective frame rate to start with to then be able to get it into whatever format and frame rate you wanted.
1: I certainly understand that. And of course, Doug Trumbull was behind uh, ShowScan, which is the 60 frame uh, per second rate. Exactly. And and when we were back in film, 60 was about as fast as we'd ever want to run the projector and still expect the film to hold together. Right. Uh, um, I don't disagree that uh, 120 frames could be a common uh, format. Uh, it's certainly way above our temporal ability to see motion, so uh, all of us, no matter what our persistence of vision at one hundred and twenty hertz, would see uh, a motion level that is far better than uh well it, it would it would certainly be the limit of our vision. Mm-hmm. In fact, at, at one point, 60 hertz was considered uh, pretty close to the limit of vision. But as you point out, 120 hertz has a lot of division rates that makes it easier to translate it to a lot of different um, display formats. hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I want to take one more moment to look at one other pattern that you have created, and then we're going to move on to uh, your home theater and its construction, which is also a fascinating story. Uh, but it's the image of the house uh, that is actually the back of the Biltmore Hotel, I think you said, in Santa Barbara?
1: Yes, it's, uh, the, it's the grounds of the Biltmore Hotel.
0: Right, so if we can take a look at that uh, image. Oh, here's oh, the, the- side-by-side. This is the and side-by-side. It, and, it, and, you know, it, and it's a real close-up. And it's a serious close-up. If we take a look at the original first, um, which is just the, the picture of the of the hotel, uh, we can see that it 's a white spanish style house with uh, plants and a garden and a and a railing. there it is there you go um, yes now this was a picture that I think you took actually yes, i did and uh, uh, and then what you did with it was something very interesting, and that 's the next that 's the left right one that we saw a little earlier. Tell us what you did with this
1: picture well um I took the picture and compressed it horizontally in other words uh squeezed it in half so that I could put a left eye image on one side and a right eye image on the other side uh, so that I could emulate uh, the side-by-side transmission format. Of course, I can also vertically compress it so I can uh, emulate the top bottom format of transmission of 3D. Mm. The reason I'm doing images is because Everybody says, well, you know, test patterns are one thing, but when it comes to images, that's something else. And I'm trying to say that um, once you know what you're looking for in test patterns, I can then put up images and you'll see the same thing. And initially, it's easier to see that in still images. So that's my starting point. And eventually, when I get to uh, my 3D disk, uh, the Blu-ray. Yeah. I will have uh, my own three D motion material. Uh, uh, I'm going to have highly controlled motion in three D, so that we'll have an opportunity uh, to evaluate what we're seeing, rather than you know some action movie where things go by so fast you can't figure out what's going on anyway. Right, right, right. Uh, but the the attempt here was to say. Can you see the same things in test patterns in real images? And by, once again, taking it one step at a time, you see the test patterns first, then you see the still images, and once you know what you're looking for, you can't miss Mm -hmm. uh, the same kinds of things that you're seeing um, in the test patterns. It's a a step-by-step introduction to the reality of 3D. Yes.
0: Now, the one thing you did with this, with this one picture that I was so fascinated by, uh, in addition to that side-by-side and over-under thing you were talking about, you took two copies of the same image, you eliminated the even-numbered lines out of one of them and the odd-numbered lines out of the other one. And if we can see the left-right image on the screen, uh, which we saw a, little, a, a moment ago, uh, we'll be able to see what that uh, looked like. And if you zoom in on it, you'll be able to. will be able to see that the lines alternate. So I have to zoom in pretty far. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so why did you do that?
1: Well, the the purpose of doing this was to pre-filter, if you will, or <clears throat> create the image that passive 3D has to create on its own. So there there are actually multiple reasons for doing it, but among those reasons was to determine first of all uh, how much the image is degraded by the passive processing in the set in other words if i present the set with exactly what it expects to put on the display what does it do with that signal from the input to the output Mm -hmm. a second reason that i created that image is a number of passive TV set manufacturers claim, as much as they're removing half the lines from the picture, they're actually creating an interlaced picture out of the left eye. In other words, in one period of time, they're showing the odd number of lines, and in a number, uh, at, uh, the next period of time, they're showing the even number of lines. Well in this particular case if all the even lines are black and all the odd lines are image quality then what you're going to have if they're actually truly trying to interlace you're actually going to have some extreme flickering because it's going to be black picture black picture and you know it's going to constantly go back and forth so This particular pattern makes it easy for me to test if they're actually doing that. There are a lot of claims being made that they're doing it, but this is a method of determining for real if it's actually happening.
0: Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating uh, approach that uh, I had not thought of before, but it really works well, as we saw in some examples in the studio as we were looking at it and some other examples uh, you can actually see whether or not what they're claiming they're doing is actually happening.
1: Well, and that's certainly been a part of my heritage in the industry, that all the test signals that you see in my disk are a reference for what the system says it's supposed to be able to do. So mm-hmm. in theory, you should be able to put up these test signals and it should work. Uh, 3D, there's lots of unstandardized, if that's a word, there are non <laughs> non-standardized approaches because there aren't any standards for 3d yeah and so everybody's taking their own approach to making 3d happen so basically they tell us what they're doing and so i designed test signals to find out if that's like, if that's actually what they're doing mm-hmm. uh, but i've been doing that for my whole
0: career exactly exactly and those of us who uh who test tvs and really want to know what's going on Uh, certainly appreciate it very much. We're going to spend the last few minutes talking about your home theater, which is a great story in and of itself. But before we do, I want to take a moment to thank the other sponsor for this show, Hover.com. Hover is all all about making domain registration and service simple. They don't sell a ton of services. They focus on making it easy to register and manage domains and email. Even better, they have a new no-hold policy for customer service calls, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 8 (sighs) p.m. Eastern. When you call, you'll get a live person, and they won't put you on hold. Here's an exclusive offer for the TWIT audience, a free transfer concierge service. Hover is offering TWIT audience members free domain transfer, no matter how many domain names you have. Uh, It's a $25 service on the site, but just call Hover, give them your username and password, and they take it from there. They'll get the authorization codes deal with all the emails let you know when your domain names are on hover and working exactly as you want them to the transfer itself is ten dollars per domain name and this extends the domain one year beyond its current registration date for the twit audience hover will handle the whole hassle of transfer for you at no additional cost to get this free concierge service uh, call hovers customer support line customer service number listed on their website which is Hover.com, uh, and all you need to do, and if you need a new domain, get 10% off by going to Hover.com slash HTG, and using the offer code HTG. We thank Hover for their support of this show and Twit in general. So Joe, um, in the last few minutes here, I wanna, I wanna go over your, uh, talk a little bit about your, your own home theater. You moved a couple of years ago into a beautiful house, uh, and uh, if we take a look at a couple of the before shots, we will see uh, what the room looked like before you tore it apart. <laughs> tore it down and built it back. Here's, uh, here it is, uh, white walls, <laughs> big windows.
1: This, this is as it was staged by the real estate company. That picture is actually before I bought the house. Oh, okay. And <laughs> when, when I came in uh, to look at it, the real estate company had staged the house, um, for whatever reason. Right. Now, um, this there's, is there's actually
0: towards the back.
1: Yeah. The, um, I'd moved in by this, this point and, um, uh, the room is open to the kitchen, uh, in the back. So it's a, it's a family room. Right.
0: And then, uh, and then work began and we see a couple of construction shots here where, uh, where things got a little messy,
1: I think. Uh, Yes, I basically needed acoustic treatment in that room. And so rather than punch holes in the wall or try to do anything, I decided to hang the acoustic treatment on the surface of the wall. Hmm. But then of course, I didn't want that to show up. So I had to build a structure to support fabric that could go over the top of the um, acoustic treatment. And that's so what, we what you see, see there. Yeah, you see there is the uh, frame structure that supports the fabric. And, of course, this also allowed me to add down lighting from the ceiling. It allowed me to uh, surface mount the roll screen, uh, you know, without um, having to cut holes in the ceiling. I just mounted it to the uh, surface of the ceiling because the ceiling had to come down anyway uh, to support the fabric. So it hid the screen. It made wiring really awesome. easy. Mm-hmm.
0: Alan, Alan, Mitch uh, asks, as I asked you before, uh, wouldn't the open back cause sound problems that open back
1: of the room into the kitchen? actually the interesting thing of course is that you want a diffuser in the back of the room and the kitchen ends up being the perfect diffuser <laughs> uh, well perfect It it's a really good diffuser so um uh that it it worked to my advantage having the kitchen back there we originally thought we might have to draw a curtain across and you know put a diffuser but when we started making room measurements uh it it was it was a essentially what i needed hmm. so the the kitchen is the perfect diffuser okay. on the back end of my home theater what do you know what do you know let's take a look at
0: a couple of the other acoustic treatments uh <laughs> before the uh final uh covering went on i know we've got a couple of those pictures sitting there in the uh, folder somewhere there we go oh
1: there there
0: it went there it was and there it went
1: here we go yeah well, you can see diffusers and absorbers on the ceiling. That um, Also, the absorbers on the ceiling are spaced down away from the ceiling, so they're not only absorbers, but they're also base traps. So the spacing away from the ceiling of the absorbers uh, gives me a base trap. And then, of course, there's diffusion directly over the seating area. That, so was, we that, used-
0: that was that triangular triangular
1: looking uh, structure there that we saw a moment ago. Right. So I'm using a combination of absorption and diffusion. Uh, You can see on the wall next to the uh, fireplace, to the left of the fireplace, you can see I've got um, absorbers on top and I've got diffusers on the bottom. Well, it turns out that at speaker height, I've got the absorbers placed where the high frequency content comes out of the speakers and I've got the diffusers placed at the level where uh, low frequency comes out. So I'm diffusing low frequencies and I'm absorbing high frequencies. The room still sounds alive, but is uh, tightly controlled acoustically.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then uh, one of the things that you had to do, of course, was uh, redo the heating, ventilation and air conditioning system, because that's one of the surprising areas of noise that can really impact a home theater. And I think we have a picture of the uh, of the heating
1: and air conditioning system on your roof. Uh, you yes. have to
0: install two different units there.
1: Well, uh, a number of things. First of all, the um, heat exchangers are on the roof of my house and the old heat exchangers were directly coupled to the house. In other words, that platform uh, was locked into the house and they were sitting directly on it. And the new air conditioning units, which incidentally were quite a bit larger than what went out, um, are now acoustically isolated from the house. Mm. They're setting on a two inch fiberglass, pad, uh, which of course is covered by the metal sheet that you see there. And then there are cork pads um, on the air conditioners themselves, so there's vibration isolation to the metal pad and then there's two inches of uh, fiberglass, compressed fiberglass for more isolation. So there's now no acoustic coupling of the air conditioners themselves to the house. The units are much larger than the originals so that the fans in the air conditioning system itself can be turned at a lower speed. Uh, So when the air conditioning comes on in the home theater, you feel it, but you do not hear it. I can Mm -hmm. have everything else off in the room, uh, nothing running whatsoever. And when the air conditioning comes on, you absolutely feel it, but you don't hear it. So, it's it's absolutely dead quiet which was the goal i actually hired people that um specialize in doing air conditioning for post-production houses uh to do this house because they know about requirements to have the air conditioning totally silent you put air conditioning in a foley room which of course has to have and that air conditioning has to be totally silent Hmm. and so I hired people who do that for a living and understand airflow and duct work. And um, we completely redid the air conditioning system so that I could have really quiet uh, operation in the home theater. Mm-hmm.
0: And then so finally we end up with a, a few pictures of the finished product uh, which uh, in which you have put a dark gray material over the acoustic treatments and you yes. see there are some some uplighting uplighting sconces uh, yes. your drop-down screen has come down and um, yes. and
1: um, yeah it, i put black behind the screen originally i thought that um that was going to be necessary and of course uh then i found that i had to backlight the wall because the amount of light i've got coming off from the screen is so high that i had to backlight anyway so that black didn't need to be black in the final results. Incidentally, the sconces aren't on when the home theater is being used; just of the downlighting. Right, and there there is downlighting behind the screen to light up that back wall. Oh, you and, believe in
0: you believe in bias lighting even for a front projector?
1: Then oh, I have to. Um, basically, human factors teaches you that. Uh, the threshold of dark to light in a totally dark room is about 16-foot Lamberts. Incidentally, the magic number that is used for setting up um, open gate uh, in projectors. But uh, anything, in, in, com- in commercial theaters. In commercial theaters. Anything above 16-foot Lamberts, if you truly have dark, the transition from dark to light is so large that it will create eye fatigue uh, in transitions. So almost everyone needs backlighting at a 20 foot lambert level and 16 seems to be the threshold of where people seemed some people seem to need it well i'm running 23 foot lamberts off my screen which means i have to have backlighting it's Mm -hmm. it's way too bright um to uh not have the backlighting now i did that because i actually this is my TV set. And when I'm in the kitchen, I need a bright picture to be able to really see what's going on from the kitchen. So mm-hmm. it was easier just to add a backlight. So I don't have to readjust the projector uh, for when I'm watching uh, in the theater versus in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- with the backlighting, it's, it's, it's all the same. And so I don't have to make any adjustments to the uh, projector for lights on versus lights off. Right,
0: um, Alex, Ale- Alan Mish rather asks, uh, uh, do you have? Do you run a 5.1 or a 7.1 system?
1: I have a 7.1 system. Uh, actually, I have a seven channel system. The subwoofers aren't here yet. Ah. Um, so your, your speakers uh,
0: are uh, revels, right?
1: Yes, yes, I have the Ultima 2s and um, they do a really nice job of handling low frequency information. Um, The subwoofers aren't available yet in the Ultima Two product line, so I'm running a seven-channel system, and, of course, all low-frequency information is um, currently in the front channels. Uh, So I don't have as much control over the base as I will have when subwoofers come in the system. Right.
0: And just to finish up the other the major equipment in the, in the theater, uh, you, you're running the Samsung projector, which you helped design. Yeah, um, I'm running
1: my projector.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and your screen from daylight. Yes, that's absolutely true. The,
1: uh, the which day, is a daylight a day, affinity. Yes, and I'm using the 0.9 gain screen. I've got a 7.5-foot wide image. Incidentally, the size of the image was dictated by the acoustics. The hmm. Kevin Vakes, who designed the Rebel speakers, came in and helped me with this seemingly impossible room. And he determined that there was only one position that the speakers could go that would allow me to acoustically treat the room and come up with a really good room. And so we measured the distance between the speakers and that became the image size. So acoustics dictated the image size in my room.
0: Hmm. And what is that
1: image size? It's seven and a half feet wide mm-hmm. and 16 by nine. Yes, it's a one seven eight aspect ratio and it's the point nine gain affinity screen. And so the video packages mind the projector and screen combination, um, uh, which is critical. Most people who have been here have told me it's one of the finest images they've ever seen anywhere.
0: Well, I'd, and I would have to agree with that, uh, because I have seen uh, quite a few images there, and it is truly outstanding. And I really wanted to give people a, a quick, quick look at uh, the process you went through to convert uh, a less-than-ideal room <laughs> into a superb home theater. And with that, unfortunately, we've run out of time. In fact, we've gone a bit over. So I want to thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Now, as I mentioned before, you can get information about Joe's various uh, projects and his discs and so on at VideoEssentials.com. My online homes are a UltimateAVMag.com and HomeTheater.com. You can email me at Scott at Twit.tv. And you can follow me on Twitter at HTGeekScott. Next Monday is Memorial Day, so we'll be taking the day off. In two weeks, my guest geek is scheduled to be Joe uh, Jeff Murray, president of SpectraCal, developers of video display calibration software, and um, really quite an interesting fellow. So I sure hope you will join me for that. Until then, geek out.